Hey there, Five Things listener. Our friends at T-Mobile Stories want to tell you about a podcast from Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist Shauna Ryan and veteran writer and editor Jason Adams. It's the Mobile Diaries podcast. Every other Thursday, Jason and Shauna dive into the modern digital life and the mobile technology that makes it possible. They cover everything from the digital nomads who are living their best lives untethered to the emergence of mobile mental health care and the evolution of dating due to the pandemic. It's an insightful look at what it means to live a life of mobile mindfulness. Listen to Mobile Diaries wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Five Things, This Week in Social. Each week, we find five stories from the metaverse or the socialverse to give you exactly what you need to know so that when the kids go back to school, you can tell them that you know what Be Real is and you heard it on The Five Things podcast from your friends at Gray. This week, we'd like to welcome Daniel Avon to the show. Daniel is a data strategy director, and this is his first time with us on the podcast. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. What has been the highlight of your summer so far? What has been the highlight of my summer so far? You know, it has been intolerably hot, but it's also been great because the winter was pretty brutal, and I'm cool with the balance of the extremes. Good. Yeah, me too. I don't mind a hot summer, but I hate a cold winter. All right. We also have our resident emerging tech expert, Amanda Davis, is here. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Joey. Hi, Daniel. Amanda, what are the musical vibes these days? What are we into? Okay, this is really embarrassing. I feel like one of those TikToker interview recipients getting asked on the street what they're listening to because what I've been listening to, I just had a birthday and it's a very nostalgic experience having a birthday. So I've been going back to my high school indie sleaze phase of listening to dance pop pretty consistently. So that's what's keeping me going right now. There's nothing embarrassing or wrong about going back in time. When when the Spotify recap comes out, it's always songs that I used to listen to in high school and college. So anyway, I am Joey Scarillo, and I am happy to hold on to every ounce of summer before fall gets here. But for now, let's get into the five things. First up, Amanda opens with Instagram, who is testing a new Be Real inspired feature. Then Daniel tells us about YouTube launching its podcast platform in the U.S. Then Amanda will tell us about TikTok, who tested a new nearby feature. Then Daniel breaks down HBO Max's launch of a localized Snapchat activation for House of the Dragon. And finally, Amanda tells us about Twitter sharing ad tips for marketers ahead of the holiday season. All right, let's go, Amanda. Tell us about Instagram testing a new Be Real inspired, quote unquote, feature. All right. If you're a regular Five Things listener, you will probably remember this prediction that we made a few episodes back in which we assumed that Instagram would probably be inspired by the new app Be Real, which if you're not familiar, it prompts you at a different time every day to take a front facing and back facing photo of what you're up to at that moment. As expected, (laughs) Instagram has launched, and this is only internally that they've launched this to test, a feature on the platform that is inspired by aka exactly like Be Real, in which it prompts users every day to share what they're doing. They're calling it IG Candid, and it's rolling out again in very limited capacity from an internal testing standpoint. I think this is really interesting. This week, it was also announced that Be Real has just reached over 10 million daily active users for an app that was just launched this year. That's huge. It's a huge milestone again, and people are flocking to that app knowing it offers something slightly different than other social platforms. I think we've talked about this on the pod a lot. Platforms are going to continue copying each other 
together, seeing what's working, being inspired by other features, whether that's video editing capabilities from TikTok or audio rooms from Clubhouse. Now this kind of candid feature, you know, it's not so unexpected, but I think the biggest takeaway for marketers too, is that like, this is a really big behavior shift, being really conscious of what people are looking for, especially younger users in social media. And how do we keep that in mind when we are either creating content, creating platform strategy and understanding how our brand shows up, knowing that B-Real is almost the anti-Instagram. People like it because it's very unpolished. It's There's no filters. You don't really need to curate your presence on it. There's not an, a feed that kind of follows you everywhere you go. So again, keeping all these things in mind and understanding what people like about these features is the larger takeaway than necessarily the, the copycatting that might happen on Instagram and other platforms. So larger shift into what people consider social media and what they're trying to get out of it. Fully candid here. I only know about Be Real because of my friends on this show. So thank you for that. Daniel, are you surprised that Instagram jumped on this popular feature from another platform? Pretty unsurprised. As Amanda was saying, I mean, Reels happened. There are a lot of things that Instagram kind of takes the best of the best from other platforms that people are enjoying. It's it's interesting because those other platforms kind of lead with a single-minded thing that they can rally people around. And Instagram's trying to be kind of the everyman's platform, I guess I could call it, where they're just like, you want to do this, 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 or this. It is a little scary like as a marketer as well, because you talk about inventories and where you're showing up and you you have to like make your strategy make sense for your consumer and, and what they like about the platforms. But if you have like eight, 10 and expanding ad formats on Instagram, it's sort of like, well, what is the lowest common denominator? How am I intelligent with the content that I'm creating to a point where I'm not just wasting money by creating multiple, multiple formats? Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about that, that core feature from each app. Instagram tries to take the best from each one. And I think if you asked any user, what's the core feature in Instagram? I don't even know that it would have an answer anymore. It is interesting too, that Instagram's jumping on the anti-Instagram as their next feature. Amanda, is there anything else you want to say about this one? Yeah, I, I think that we will see adoption of this knowing that again, BeReal has 10 million daily active users. Instagram still has in the billions of active users monthly too. So while we're pretty familiar with this platform, it's really popular with younger users. This will be something to your point, Joey, that a lot of Instagram's core user base does not know, kind of is inspired by another app. So I think that we will see people pick this up and we'll see them kind of tap into this behavior at more of a, a scale. We might see the clubhouse effect in which other platforms pick up the feature and then the original core base platform that started it maybe isn't used as often. I hope not, but I think it's something we should kind of keep an eye on too. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's jump over to YouTube, who launched their podcast platform in the U.S. Daniel, tell us about it. So firstly, it feels a little meta to be talking about podcasts on a podcast, which I'm kind of obsessed with. I myself was an early adopter of podcasts, and it's hard to believe that they've been around for about 17 years, first introduced by Apple in 2005. YouTube is adding a dedicated page to its browser. Think about it like a recommendations page like when you enter YouTube normally, and it gives you recommendations in line with now podcasts. YouTube hasn't really done anything to this point formally around podcasts, although podcasts and video podcasts have lived on their platform for quite some time. It doesn't seem like until now they've had a lot of urgency because to that first point, you know, they kind of live organically on there anyways. If you have a video that you want to be made available to the public, obviously you go to YouTube and you make it available to the public there. YouTube itself also 
has a lot of other revenue streams. Thinking about the scale of YouTube and how much ad revenue it generates for Google versus the podcast industry at large, YouTube is 30 times larger. So they're not thinking like, how can I disrupt this podcast space? They're thinking, I'm YouTube. I am quite large. I'm going to just do what is making me the most money. But what's interesting is Cumulus, which is a firm that does research on the audio industry and beyond, did a study and evaluated and understood that YouTube is actually outperforming Apple and Spotify because there is a new rise in video podcasts. So a desire for the audio medium to live visually. And there is kind of an existing behavior like prior to this this move, I feel, where some creators are releasing content. Some podcasters are taking advantage of video as a way of reaching their audiences. You know, it may take shape as just releasing all of their content as videos and audio. They may have exclusives that they put behind a paywall through a Patreon or something like that, or maybe just some special releases. All of those, for the most part, will end up on YouTube at some point. It's kind of interesting to me as an avid podcast listener because it's a real advantage of YouTube. Like Spotify just introduced a video format, I think in April of 2022 or so. And I don't think of Spotify as a place I would go for video content. You kind of put two and two together for you or one and one together for YouTube. And when you think about, as, as we were mentioning on the previous topic, when there is less friction or when you're adding sort of a capability into something that feels germane to the platform, people are going to use it and people are going to engage with it. And YouTube just adding this tab on, just kind of giving space for it. It feels like kind of a no brainer and it leans very heavily into what users already do on the platform. It is kind of interesting for brands and advertisers, though, because to this point, jokingly, a lot of podcasters say this is a visual medium and then they refer to something visual, but it is an audio medium. So the way that you talk about advertise, introduce brands into the conversation, it's all spoken. But this gives an opportunity with an emergence of video podcasts to have the brand on site, to have hosts working with a product or trying something on. So there's an interesting new and different way that brands could potentially engage with podcasters or video podcasters. Additionally, this is like early days of podcast advertising where there was some struggle beyond host reads to get sort of the dynamic ad placements in. I think some partners have made really good headway there. Spotify, iHeart, all those folks of not just having host reads available, but you can just have kind of canned audio placements within those. It's interesting and curious to see how YouTube kind of adopts that behavior in a video way. Is there a way for them to have original content, original podcast producers creating video content that lives within the podcast, or are they just going to do the typical mid-roll placements that they are right now? This guy's kind of the limit, and I'm curious if we're going to have a MailChimp moment with them as well as they kind of are legitimately taking on this notion of video podcasts that it can really break the internet with something new and different. Uh, kudos to everything you just said. That was like so perfectly articulated all the points that I was thinking as well. Amanda, from a discoverability standpoint, do you think that Apple and Spotify should be worried about this launch? I think so. And to Daniel's point too, the behavior, as we were talking about in the last topic, is something that is slightly different on YouTube. I know there are a lot of people that listen to podcasts while they're going about their day, commuting, doing errands, whatever. But knowing that when someone is watching video content on YouTube, they're very much actively engaged. And I think to that point too, YouTube has an advantage in that they are having someone's near full attention and able to really measure what they're paying attention to, what they're listening to, the other interests they might have. Because again, YouTube is one of, one of, if not the most used platform. All of this data that also supports 
the listening behavior will likely put them in a position that's a little bit more successful, I think, than Spotify and Apple. Yeah, there's another interesting piece of this story, too, that I read from the Hot Pod newsletter, and that is that NPR actually... The, the old Stallworth of audio and podcasting actually partnered with YouTube to bring more than 20 of its shows to YouTube, which is actually huge when you think about it, considering a lot of people in podcasting w- would not consider anything on YouTube a podcast because it doesn't have the RSS feed. But I think YouTube here subtly is redefining what a podcast is. And so some notable shows that are already on there, again, from NPR, NBC News is on there, PBS News, Fox News, ESPN, The Always sunny guys are there and crooked media. So you're seeing a lot more of these podcast producers migrating onto YouTube. And there isn't even one size fits all for what a podcast is on YouTube, because some might be literally just the audio with a logo as the image throughout the entire video. And others might be, you know, two or three people sitting around microphones and chatting and calling that a podcast. So the point here is too, that you could easily on YouTube, go watch some cat videos, listen to an NPR podcast, and then the next video be top 10 things you love about Ryan Gosling. Like all of that could be in one user journey. And I think that's what's great. And that just gets more of this audio content out there. Amanda, anything else? Yeah, I was just going to say too, knowing people's familiarity with YouTube, we also see two new ways in for one YouTubers that are already making YouTube content, making video content. Perhaps they wanted to enter the audio space, but felt like it maybe wasn't in their kind of platform capability. So the amount of YouTubers that can now start to have an audio presence. And then two, same goes for marketers. You know, if a brand hasn't necessarily started audio advertising or really know where to get into these podcast platforms, this gives them a very easy kind of first step into this that I think, again, YouTube really has a chance to own that, whereas Spotify and Apple pull that separately from some of the other advertising offerings they might have. Amazing. Well, unfortunately, we do have to move on, but maybe someday we could just do a podcast where we just talk about podcasts all day. But for now, Amanda, tell us about TikTok testing the new nearby feature. TikTok testing new nearby feature. It's a Dr. Seuss line. But this week, TikTok is... I'll say it again, testing a new nearby feature that's designed to display local content to its users. This is planning right now to show up as almost a new tab alongside your following and for you pages. Right now, this is being tested originally in Southeast Asia to see if it should be rolled out a little bit further. And it gives creators the ability to add location tags to their video, but it's still to be determined if the aggregation of local videos are only for the videos that have been tagged or all of the public videos posted in the area. This isn't incredibly unsurprising. We've seen location-based features with Snapchat's Snap Map and Instagram's recently launched searchable map that allow users on the platform to discover nearby popular locations. I think what's really interesting to keep an eye on is TikTok obviously has that iconic algorithm that brings people's very relevant content to the user. So this map could actually be even more useful on this platform with specialized recommendations. If you're a nature person and you want to find a new trail, or if you're a foodie and you're looking for a cocktail bar, thinking about how they might be able to pair that really, really precise data with the location-based recommendations is super interesting. And for, for marketers too, there's a couple of big opportunities I think that come to mind. Google spokesperson noted recently that 40%, 40% is a big number, of 
younger users go to TikTok or Instagram when they're looking for a place to eat, as opposed to searching on Google Maps or just Google searching. That's huge. They're looking for a recommendation. They're looking for something that they trust. They're probably looking for something more visual, something that tells a story about what that experience is. And again, pairing this with TikTok's algorithm and the video content, user-driven video content, could be a big opportunity. And then secondly, thinking about maybe smaller businesses or local advertisers being able to share kind of nearby services or promotions, perhaps exclusive sales or other extended capabilities than what the store itself might be able to do physically using TikTok's shop tab. So there's a lot of opportunity that might come from this. Right now it's just being tested. So we'll see how they actually rolled this out widespread, but there's a lot of opportunity here for brands. I hadn't considered that the phrase Google it would potentially be at risk of not being the number one way of searching for something. So that little stat kind of blew my mind, Amanda. That is very interesting. Daniel, I'm curious, with this new feature, you know, there's always some some bugs to work out, some a phase of discoverability. Do you see any privacy concerns here or anything that you would be worried about with this new feature from TikTok? I would say yes and no. I think if we've learned anything from kind of an app-based world, the majority of us will opt in just because of the benefit or the utility that we get out of sharing our information so long as it's maybe when we have the app open and it's sort of in our control. There is some exposure to like GDPR-like things that they may have to consider and think about that they may not have to this point. But I think, as Amanda was saying, like the benefits and the potential benefits for advertisers, small businesses, and things of interest in local areas versus kind of competing with the really global algorithm of TikTok, it outweighs it. And I think that users will more often than not really take advantage of this and opt in in the event that it is made more broadly available outside of this initial pilot phase. And Amanda, do you think brands will start to jump on this fast? Yeah, I think it's another way that users can stumble upon their content, discover perhaps a local business that they might not know. You especially think about metropolitan areas where there's a lot of options for things like a nail salon or a restaurant or any other kind of service or experience. So adding in layers of how people actually discover your brand and marketing content is is just a new avenue in that they'll take advantage of. Can't wait to see where it goes. All right, Game of Thrones fans. Daniel, tell us about HBO Max launching a localized Snapchat activation for House of the Dragon. So unless you've been living under a rock, you know that... Game of Thrones is back with the House of the Dragon series. So the original series ended and a lot of people found themselves disappointed, dissatisfied and hungering for more. So HBO is launching this new series, opening this world back up and hopefully in the minds of some consumers and hearts of others, redeem themselves a bit for for the things that they left unsatisfactory with the last series. But what we're here to talk about is not the show itself that is for everyone to kind of go about their way and watch themselves. We're here to talk about a really interesting way in which HBO has partnered with Snapchat. They're calling it sort of like a localized creator-based activation where they are leveraging a few of Snap's capabilities and uh, benefits of their AR, their lens tools. This activation for them is sort of like a localized and creator-based partnership that takes a lot of the capabilities of Snap, their AR, their lens tools, this group of creators that they have that have already made 2.5 million lenses already. So it's kind of a well-trodden use of the platform, but it's novel in the way that they're approaching it this time around. They're using something called 
called Landmarker AR Experiences, which is the camera notices or notices you're in a location where you are in front of a landmark and it integrates a dragon from the show into that landmark and sort of interacts in the environment so you can see and enjoy specific to that site. It's not for all landmarks. There are a few ones across the world. And what's great about this is this is not just a launch idea where they set it and forget it and just kind of move on with their lives. As the show evolves and more dragons are introduced into the show, these same locations will have new and different content over the course of the show. So if you're in LA, Rio, London, Chennai, Mumbai, or Prague, you will have access to this experience at very specific landmarks in the area. It's particularly cool because it has some of the same <laughs> site-specific virtues of something like a Pokemon Go, where you go to a place to experience a thing. And again, that sort of custom exclusive experience made by creators. So working with them and not necessarily just having Snap produce it on your behalf, which may reduce cost, um, but it adds another element to the experience. What I think, though, is this type of technology could be really cool for other brands. So yes, they're talking about landmarks right now, but think about other things that are location-based or sort of visually recognizable. Think about like a fast food or fast casual restaurant. For the most part, a McDonald's looks the same or the Arches logo looks the same. And wouldn't it be interesting how they partner directly with Snap or in conjunction with another property like a Stranger Things, as an example, not saying that it's a proposal, but something like that where they can make it site-specific, but not so site-specific that it becomes exclusive to only people who are in those areas, and instead is more of a, I'm taking as a benefit that I am all across the US, a subway or whatever, and you can go to my location, maybe get a promotion, maybe get an interesting experience with an AR lens. And it just, it opens up a new world to kind of have brands engage with the platform in ways that they may not have as much in the past. I'm going to admit something. I am actually not a Game of Thrones watcher, but this sounds really cool. Amanda, I'm curious, do you think this type of long-term interaction and this kind of technology will really get fans excited for things like this? Yeah, 100%. And I think especially for or something like Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon. We saw, obviously, in the original show that people really craved talking about it, interacting with it. After the show ended, it was not the end of the conversation. It was very much a, a cultural topic that people wanted more interaction with. And I think what Daniel was describing of this ongoing plan to consistently provide new experiences is the key to this being successful. And again, to use the examples that Daniel mentioned, if you go to a restaurant once a week and you have a different visual AR experience every single time, that's going to be very satisfying and interesting for people to want to engage with, gives them a reason to see what's, you know, what's new or what's different from the last time they were there. So I think that's also the key to how they've activated this in a way that keeps people engaged, just like they're watching the show every week, they might have a different dragon to interact with at some of these landmarks. And I think there's a lot of ways that brands can have fun with that. All right, friends, let's get into our last thing of the day, Twitter sharing ad tips for marketers ahead of this year's holiday season. I'm not even ready for summer to end yet, and we're already talking about the holiday season, but Amanda, break it down for us. 
All right. Luckily, I got in the mode over the weekend because we had a nice, cool breeze, felt like fall was coming in. And with that, the Twitter business team hosted a Twitter Spaces conversation to help marketers understand how they might be able to leverage the platform for the upcoming holiday season and into 2023. So again, this was an audio conversation. There was a lot discussed, but some of the most important takeaways we'll we'll cover in this pod, but recommend that you kind of listen on your own as well. I think the first one, really important, seemingly obvious, pay attention to key moments. So we already do this with community management and kind of ongoing evergreen planning for brands. But there are a lot of very specific real-time events that Twitter sees a lot of commentary on. These moments where people are coming together to specifically talk about something on the platform that brands have the opportunity to take advantage of. Things like the Rose Bowl, CES, esports tournaments, and understanding how brands can prepare content and be ready to jump into these conversations based on the trending hashtags that users might already be using. One of the examples they mentioned that I thought was was really smart is Pokemon Go has community days where people kind of share tips, have one specific challenge that everybody's trying to do together. And RuPaul's Drag Race has a Twitter account, and they actually hopped in on one of this very specific community days and started adding in videos from the queens talking about their favorite Pokemon and being able to, again, join this conversation that at first blush might seem different or you don't maybe see a direct tie, but figuring out ways and being very intentional about how that account and these brands are showing up to join these conversations is super important. And again, looking at it very specific to Twitter versus necessarily general cultural moments. They also shared some best practices, kind of an update on things that maybe aren't surprising, but just to help brands understand, you know, what what content does do well on the platform. Incorporating eye-catching visuals, whether it's videos, GIFs, or static images. I think we tend to think of Twitter as a text only or a text heavy platform. And while that's not untrue, this is for brands and even better reason to understand how visuals can stand out in a user's feed of text. Obviously, the text is important, but when you're trying to catch the attention of someone scrolling through tons and tons of tweets, visuals really do a great job and and perform better than text only. Some other best practices, video creative, kind of the sweet spot is still between six and 15 seconds. You want to keep it concise. Same with copy-based tweets between 50 and 500 characters, making sure that the message is really clear and concise and you're not asking the user to do too much reading or home. They also mentioned that campaigns should utilize between three and 12 unique creative assets. You want to make sure you're not wearing out any of the content with your audience and giving them something new every time they might interact with that message. And then when it comes to optimizing targeting, making sure that your campaign changes all happen at once and you're giving three or four days to really understand the impact. What are we doing to impact performance before necessarily iteratively updating that through the time spent? So I thought it was really great that Twitter did this. A bit of a check-in, I think, for brands to make sure that they're keeping these things in mind. Doing it through a Twitter spaces, which a lot of people might not have interacted with a Twitter spaces before. So this could have been their very first way into that. Understanding how they might use that feature. And I think something that they included as far as the statistic is that people spend 26% more time viewing ads on Twitter than other leading platforms. There's always going to be really impressive metrics from these platforms. But I think knowing that, again, people are very engaged on the platform. They are scrolling through their feed, taking in a lot of information and content. So when you show up in that way, where someone is ready to hear, read, listen to your message, you have a better chance of of kind of holding their attention here, which I think brands should make sure that they're taking advantage of. 
A hundred percent. Daniel, I like to ask this question after we get one of these reports where we get a lot of information and data. What jumped out to you most? What do you think is the biggest takeaway for brands out of all of that? So these types of reports can be, as a marketer, a little eye-rolly sometimes because it's like usually like branding within the first three, two, one seconds. What I liked about them is that they give like a firm and flexible framework of how to engage with the platform. They're saying these are what typically tend to work, but it's not a, it's not a set rule and you need to understand what works best for you and your brand. What I also appreciated is this notion of proactivity to be better at being reactive. So as Amanda was talking about, there's a calendar of fixed events and to make those events work even harder for you, pay attention to the hashtags that are trending and so forth. But if you know going into it, I want to engage with X event and then I will adjust my copy or what I'm saying to my community of people with what is trending in the moment. It just, it makes it a lot less overwhelming and scary, which I think a lot of brands without like dedicated community management teams and so forth may not feel comfortable doing. The other thing that we didn't mention, which I thought was kind of adorable, but also really beneficial for teams that are starting out, they have a PDF of a calendar for each month of the year, and you can write in physically what you want to do on a given day, and it gives you a section to reflect. So what worked, what didn't work, and to continue building sort of that test and learn plan. Again, it's stupid simple. However, many people will say, I need to do a social plan for Twitter. Where do I start? This really gives you just a really easy entry into it and some some good guidance, but guidance that allows for creativity and flexibility as a brand needs. Well, that is great. That is a wonderful takeaway and a great job on your first episode. Thank you, Daniel. All right, quick program note. Next week, we will be off for Labor Day. So soak in those last bits of summer and we will see you in September. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us, or write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, or just send us a thing that you want to discuss. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank Amanda Davis and Daniel Avon for joining us on the pod. As always, I want to thank Danielle Hunt and Amanda Fuentes and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes. And finally, thank you, listener. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.